are, as I said, in this series called Jesus in Between. That we've been saying, we all know Christmas Jesus was cute. Easter Jesus was really nice. But in, in between, there's kind of all these stories in the, in the gospels that we may not be super familiar with. And so what we've been doing is we've been walking through just some of those different stories to give us a clear, fuller picture of Christ and who he is. Because there, there, I was listening this week to a guy named Mark Sayers. He's a really smart dude from Australia who sounds way smarter because he's from Australia, but he's pretty smart. And he was talking about this that really captured my attention. He says that the world that we're in, our culture is telling us a story, right? The culture is telling us a story on how we find peace, how we find meaning, how we find purpose, how we find fulfillment. That there's a story that culture is telling us through, through media, through advertising, all these different things. And a lot of it is based around individualism, Right. Well, Jesus, through the scriptures, ultimately in the words of Christ and in the person of Christ, scripture is telling us a different story, right? It's telling us a different story about how we find meaning, how we find peace, how we find fulfillment, how we find truth, and how we're ultimately saved in our lives, right? And these are some of the stories that we've been looking at in the life of Christ throughout the summer. Some of the different things that Jesus says, he says, well, the world would say that we have to defend ourselves at all costs, in the words of Christ, the story that he's telling, he says, Jesus says to love our enemies just as, just as he loved us. The world says to take up your comfort and follow your dreams. It's this quote by a guy named Scott Sauls. But Jesus says to take up your cross and follow me. The world says accrue status and power in order to achieve greatness. And what Jesus says is lay those, thi- lay those things down in order to find greatness. The world says you find your life in your happiness. And what Jesus says is you find your life in me. The story that Jesus is telling is very different than the story of our culture, than the story that we're used to, the story that we kind of tell ourselves by default. And so we've been looking at these stories. And so today we're going to continue to look at how Jesus calls us out from our, our way of life. And he calls us into, into the life that he has for us, into life that he he is. And so we're going to continue and look at a passage that may not be quite as familiar to all of us this morning, but it's based around traditions, right? And so I've been thinking about traditions this week. And as you may know, if you know me, every parent talks about their kids all the time. I had a kid six months ago. He's six months. He's huge. They get really big over six months. But what what I've kind of realized over these last six months is that parenting is just strange. Like if you're a parent or you have parents, you've been around parents, it's just weird, Right? You like argue in whispers now because you don't want to wake up children. This is, it's just strange, but it starts strange. Like day one is strange because you're at the hospital and they're like, do you want to cut the umbilical cord? And I'm like, you want me to do that? They're like, do you want to cut it? I'm like, I do not. Which I tell people that and they're like, do you not love your son? Why didn't you cut your, his umbilical cord? And I'm like, it's weird. And I have insurance for things like that. And so... But it got me thinking about, it's a strange tradition, right? It's just a tradition that we have in our culture. I don't know if they do that in like Swaziland. I don't know if they cut umbilical cords there, but it's a thing in our culture that we do, and it's a strange tradition. So I'm like, surely there's some story of like a duke who cut the umbilical cord of his son, and then his son became rich and large or something. I'm like, there had to be a traditionally story. So I looked it up on Google.com. You guys may have heard of it. It has every answer you ever need. And this is what it said. Fathers cutting the umbilical cord is a modern phenomenon over the last 50 years or so. The goal is for them to feel more involved in the delivery. It's a way that the father can do something personal in the birth process if he desires that honor is given to him. 
So basically, the reason that dads cut the umbilical cord is the same reason that like, we let like, four-year-olds see the cockpit of an airplane. They're like, they need to feel special too. Can they do this special thing? Like, that's, she like, carries him for nine months and then gruelingly pushes him out. And I'm like, I want to cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> like, it's, that's, it's a strange tradition, to say the least. It's a strange tradition. And some traditions have like, good backgrounds. Some of them have silly backgrounds like that. But traditions are things that can morph into like, really important standards, right? They can morph into like really important cultural norms. They can kind of become these really important things that are immensely important. If you don't believe me, just wait till October when everybody starts playing football and somebody will wear Michigan and everybody will hate that person. Usually it's Garrett. He wears Michigan. I don't even know if he likes Michigan. He just wears it to incite riots in Ohio. But, but we, have these, we have these social things that become so important to us. They become so important. So today I want to look at this passage where Jesus kind of addresses some of our traditions, which sounds a little weird, but he kind of calls us out on what those traditions represent. That this passage kind of exposes the religious fronts that we put up, that he exposes the way that sometimes we use traditions or social norms or cultural norms to kind of justify ourselves. And so he kind of has a run-in where he calls these things out. He challenges the way, ultimately this passage we're going to look at, is he challenges the way that we clean ourselves up in the way that we kind of make sure that we're okay before God and before others and even ourselves, that he kind of challenges some of these things. And so you guys can go ahead and open your phones, Bibles, follow along uh, in Mark 7. Mark is one of the four autobiographies of Jesus. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is the 16 chapters. And and the interesting thing about Mark, this is for free, this is actually all for free, is that um, he's writing primarily to a Roman audience. You're like, oh, wow, that's great to know. What it means is this, is the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, people who would have understood more of the religious context of the day, where the book of Mark is writing to people who didn't have all that context. He's writing to what we call Gentiles or, or Romans, people who didn't have this Jewish background. So it's interesting because as you go through the book of Mark, he kind of gives some footnotes about that. You guys are all reading the passage already. You guys are great. You guys just read it. And All right, Mark 7, here we go. At the beginning, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem and they gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then Mark, the author, kind of puts in parentheses to explain this. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they have give themselves a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with their defiled hands? Now, I know you guys are so excited and so moved by this 2,000-year-old stories of Jews washing their dishes. I'm aware that you guys are riveted right now. But as we dive into this, I think that this is so important to how we live our lives. These, a little context. These guys, these guys weren't just curious about Jesus. They weren't just like, hey, why aren't your friends washing their hands? These, these uh, religious leaders, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law had a high status in society, and they did not like Jesus. They didn't like the things he was teaching. They didn't like the people that were starting to follow him. They didn't like that he was kind of disrupting the status quo. And so they came from Jerusalem, as the passage said, to try to catch him in something and ultimately they will and they'll crucify him. You may have heard. But what they're doing here is they're trying to catch him in something. And what's interesting is they talk about washing their hands and all these different things and they're mad at the disciples that the disciples didn't. 
And what this is, is that this washing isn't totally for no reason. This washing started with the priests in, in the Old Testament, that the priests would do a ceremonial washing in order to offer sacrifices to God. It was this picture of their uncleanliness and unholiness, and that they would ceremonially cleanse themselves to, as kind of a ceremony to, to stand before God clean, so to say. This was for, for the priests. But over time, this, by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, this was something that everybody did. Everybody just had to ceremonially wash everything. Even the footnotes, if you look in your Bibles, it says they even washed the couches they sat on because they had to be clean. So what would happen many times, and some of you may have heard this before, that if God gave a law, the, the Jews at the time wanted to be so careful to follow that law, they started making other laws around that law, right? They wanted to make sure that they didn't even get close to that. And so they started making all their own traditions and their own rules around God's initial law. Now what happened is over time, and this sounds pretty familiar if you think about it, over time, what they started to do was hold up those laws that they made up as more important than the original law. They were collected in Jewish oral traditions and, and compiled into a book called the Mishnah. This is all for free. And what happened is that, that over time, the Mishnah was more important than the law of God. And so that's what's happening. These disciples didn't wash their hands, and these guys are calling them out, not because they're breaking God's laws, but because they're breaking the tradition that they held up as so important. They couldn't handle that Jesus' buddies weren't following the rules. Now today, we can't let this just be an ancient, archaic story that doesn't make any sense to us. Because what I think happens is that these guys had traditions, they had a way of life, they had social norms that they thought were so important to making sure that they were clean, that making sure that they were justified. They thought that if they just made sure they were ceremonially cleansed, that they would be okay, that they would be justified. Just like you and I, I believe that these guys had an ache, a restlessness, and a need inside of them that they needed to fill, need to be okay, to be accepted, to be clean, to be on the right side, to not ultimately be defiled. And now why they adapted this to the external, I think, is representative of how all of us are as people. That we, we all have kind of a human mindset, I think, that operates a certain way, and it's this that we think that the external things will ultimately change the internal. You can write it this way. The human mindset is that the external will fix the internal. We all know it's true, right? Because once we break something, once we mess up something, once we feel guilty about something, we instantly are like, I got to fix this with something. And sometimes we don't address the actual problem. We just want to address the things around it to make us feel better about ourselves. It's so interesting. Tim Keller calls this an outside-in cleansing. I love this quote from a publication called Mockingbird that I, I, I just love reading. It says this, because we think our problems are external, we tend to think that the solution is external as well. This explains the popularity of diets, the new motorcycles of middle-aged men, the search for the most fulfilling job. In light of the problems of our lives, we try to change the externals of our life in hopes that the deeper things might change. We, we all know this is true. We all know this. If I just go get my hair cut, if I just go lose some weight, if I just go get in shape, if I just finally get a new job, then I'm going to find some type of thing that inside of me is going to be justified and feel justified. Now, to be clear this morning, we want to say this all morning, this isn't like an attack on traditions, like stop celebrating Christmas, it's evil. Like it's not an attack on traditions at all. But it just is kind of, we want to take an inward look on like, what are the things in our lives that we hold up uh, to, to the status of what God has called us to? And at the same time, this conversation today isn't like a practical wisdom thing. So there is practical wisdom to like not surrounding yourselves with things that aren't Christ-like. That's good, but that's not what we're, what we're talking about today. That's kind of a different sermon. What we're talking about is how do we, on a deep level, make sure that we are okay with ourselves? 
to make sure that we are okay with God, to make sure that we feel like we are fulfilling who we need to be on this deep level. And what we believe as humans is the external things will fix the internal things. And I think that this is actually rooted in the way that we view sin. We did a series called Long Story Short a couple uh, months ago, and I actually talked about sin. I drew that card. And so we kind of dove into this, but I, I kind of want to refrain some of that, that I think this external to internal way that we view things is the way that we view sin. That we just view sin as like a little mess up, a little like I just kind of got a little glitch over here. I need to clean that up. It's just this external thing that if we just kind of behave a different way, then we'll be fine. Like if we get into a fight with our spouse or we tell a little lie or we went to an R-rated movie, whatever it is, then I'm just going to go to church that Sunday this month and I'm going to put Christian radio on on the way to church and I'll kind of cleanse myself, right? That we kind of have our own little ways that we kind of make sure that we're okay, that just like the Pharisees, Our human mindset, the way that we just naturally think, you don't have to agree with me, is that if we fix the outside with the right traditions, with the right systems, with the right norms, then the inside will get changed, right? It's just the way that we kind of operate. And and Tim Keller kind of talks about this in one of his uh, commentaries on on this this passage. And he kind of breaks this down into three different um, types of tradition, types of ways that we try to cleanse ourselves. And I I really agree with him in these. And the first of these is this. It's I think we, we create these social traditions, these social ways that we cleanse ourselves, that we make sure we're okay. This, we kind of do this socially, that we, sometimes we can't deal with our uncleanliness, so we make sure to give an opinion on everybody else's, especially on social media. Just a side note, if you're like a Christian, like don't argue on social media. It's just a bad look. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. That's, that's my two cents. If you disagree, you can disagree. That, that wasn't biblical. That was just two cents. But these are similar thing. If, we have, if we, we have these social traditions, that if we have the right job, if we look the right way, if we get the right attention, if we just finally get into the right relationship, then we'll be cleansed. Then we'll be okay. I know some of these things kind of sound vague. Some of these things kind of sound like, okay, but you know it's true. Because where's your money spent? Where's your time spent? If you're still for four seconds, where do all your thoughts go? They probably go to these things that we're hoping are going to make us okay. The interesting thing about our Western culture, very interested in this. The interesting thing about our Western culture is that almost everything that we do, almost everything we spend time and money on is contributing to making sure the outside looks good. Like our entire social lives are on social media. We can create what it looks like, right? That whether it's how good our resume is, how strict our exercise regimen is, how many likes we get, how our clothes look, or if we're following the perceived American dream, that these external things become so important. I get that you come to church and the pastor uses these examples and you're like, doesn't apply or it's just cliche, but just think about it because I think it's true. I think it's true that the social norms that we adapt to kind of, we believe are gonna make us okay, at least subconsciously. And if you disagree with me there, You might disagree with me more on this, but I think another way that we oftentimes try to make sure that we're cleansed, try to make sure that we're okay, you can email Dan Gregory at graceohio.org. He says that about me all the time. You can email him if you don't agree. But is that we hold to these political traditions, right? I got quiet now. We hold to these political beliefs, hoping that they'll justify, hoping that they'll cleanse us, hoping that they will represent our moral rightness, right? We fight for these things. That we hope that politically we won't only validate ourselves, but it'll validate the people around us based on their political affiliation. That we kind of judge who's clean or who's not clean based on how they voted, right? This is not more present than it is in 2019, right? You can almost see modern America sometimes like this group of Pharisees. 
This group of Pharisees that approach Jesus, they're kind of questioning what these guys are doing based on their traditions. You can almost see them like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, why aren't your disciples voting Republican? Jesus, 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 why aren't your disciples voting Democrat? Jesus, 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 why aren't your disciples voting Green Party? That was a joke. I don't know who votes Green Party. Anyways, that we hold these things so tight that we have this, we have this thing innately built into us that if we just get the right president, if we get the right Congress, if we get the right situation, then everything will just be fine. Now, I would not diminish the importance of these different social things, right? They're very important stuff, but we cling to them like there are traditions that are going to cleanse us and justify ourselves as if the most important thing, right? And the thing that is nearest and dearest to my heart that I think we kind of cling to, we can be weird about sometimes, is that we can set up certain church traditions that we hold to so tightly. I've grown up in church for 28 years. I'm a church kid, and we're weird. Sometimes we're weird. We do a lot of weird stuff. We have a lot of weird takes on things sometimes, right? Some of it's good, some of it's weird. That like I said, if we just go to, if it's just going to church on Sunday, if it's just listening to Air One, if it's saying those weird pre-unison dinner prayers where you're not sure what you're supposed to say, if we just do these things, then in some sense we'll be cleansed, we'll be okay. That, that is so common for so many of us. If we just sing the right songs, if we sing hymns, if we sing Hillsong, if I could wear jeans, if I could wear my suit, if we read KJV, if the pastor's hip and cool, if he's got a TV channel, if he's, those are the most important things about church. Those are the most important things and we'll be okay. And I think what happens many times for us in church is we get so caught up in those things that we, we find ourselves being cleansed by just our mere attendance or going through the motions is that sometimes what ends up happening is we perpetuate a meaningless motion in the church world, right? That we talk about this all the time. You can have attendance, you can go to all the right things and your heart can be far from it. So some of those things, you can agree with me, you can not agree with me, that's cool. But what's interesting is how Jesus responds to these Pharisees who are questioning his disciples on their traditions. It's, it, so Jesus, Jesus interacts with these Pharisees. They kind of call out his disciples for not washing their hands, not following the traditions of the elders. And this is how Jesus responds. Look at verse six. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is challenging. You have let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Sometimes we can hear passages like this and we're like, they're talking about my grandparents because they are so legalistic. Like we can always assume that it's talking about somebody else, right? But it's important. I think think it kind of, it requires us to kind of take a heart check, to kind of look internally and be like, could, just could Jesus be talking about me? Could I be holding on to my traditions, holding on to what I'm accustomed to and setting aside what God has actually called us to? If you're, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I just want to ask us a couple questions. If, if you're somebody, this is, I just kind of want to talk to like the church for a second. Like if you're somebody who's a believer, somebody who would say you're part of the church, just want to ask us a couple questions. I think it'll kind of help clarify what, what Jesus is saying here. First question is this. Am I more preoccupied about my preferences or about God's passions? Am I more preoccupied with God's preferences or my passions? I, I, like I said, as Christians can get a little crazy about the things that we prefer, right? 
one time I was leading one of our services and we got done leading in the hallway. There's a, a very sweet lady. She said, Aiden, 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 you guys are doing a great job. I said, thank you, ma'am. She said, can we just sing a, a little more of the hymns? Can we just do some more hymns? Right, everybody's like, yeah. I said, sure. I sing four today, but sure. And so I came in a, a different door, another lady, Aiden, Aiden, come here. She said, you guys are doing a great job. I say, so I've heard. She said, we're singing a lot of hymns. We're singing a lot of hymns, right? And I'm like, I don't know what to do here. But there's so many preferences we're always going to have, right? There's always going to be so many preferences that we have. Sometimes I'll be, I do the music here, and so I'll have people come up and they suggest songs to me that aren't even worship songs. They're like, have you heard this one by Don McLean? I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's a worship song. But, but because it's our preference, right? We have these preferences that we just want things a certain way. That sometimes if things aren't the way we like or things aren't the way we want them to be, we'll leave, we'll get mad, we'll send mad emails. Not because there's something theologically wrong, but because we just, it's not the way that we want it. I have a friend who, who works at a bigger church and he's like, I can only, I can only do big churches. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I, I can't do small churches. I'm like, why? He's like, this aren't good and I gotta do big churches. So I grabbed him and I, I punched him. No, I didn't punch. But it's just like, that's a silly thing to say because it's just a preference that we have that we set as so important. Just like Jesus is saying, we set our preferences just equal with God's passions, just like these Pharisees were doing. I think we've got to ask ourselves as the church a couple questions. Was worship awesome because everything sounded great and we did songs I liked? Or was worship awesome because God's local body is broken and crazy as we are, gathered together, and he was glorified? Was, was the sermon great today because, because it was really funny or because it was just kind of relatable? Or was it awesome because Jesus was proclaimed and his gospel was made clear? I just kind of ask ourselves this question. We are so used, we're so used to an entertainment culture. Like everything kind of goes through the lens of like, do I like it? Am I entertained? From our ads. Now there's like mini movies before YouTube videos because the ads have to be videos. Like everything is just, are we entertained by it? Are we enjoying it? So we come into a church context and our first filter is, am I enjoying it? Do I like it? Does it make me feel good? Am I happy with this? Where what God's passion is, is very different. God's passion is based on people meeting him. We can ask it another way. We can ask it this way. Am I more concerned with man's methods or God's mission? I'm more concerned with man's methods or God's mission. Louis Sullivan, you guys probably know Louis, maybe not. He was the father of skyscrapers. Not ringing any bells? I'll keep going. He was an American architect, but he famously said this. And this is kind of popular like in art architecture world, that form follows function. Have you heard that before? Form follows function. What it means is this, that when, when you're constructing something in the art real world, when you're building something, that how it looks, how you do it, follows what it's meant for. If you're building a boat, it's not, the most important thing is, does it float and is it a boat? And then you figure out how later. The form follows the function. That's so important for us as a church. Is how something is done at church more important than what is done? How, how we do church is always going to change. I've been here for 28 years, and it changes all the time. If you think that church started with people wearing suits and singing Amazing Grace, you may be wrong. And if you think it's going to end with people in skinny jeans singing Hillsong, don't point fingers at me, then you're probably wrong too, because this is just a snapshot that we have of church life. 
But it's always going to change. If the good news of Jesus is our message and reaching people is our goal, you can just pretty much account that we are going to change things, that the form is going to follow the function, that the way in which we do it is always going to change as long as the function is the exact same. I love the way Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9 in, in regards to this. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. This is what he says. I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. That he says, I have become all things to all people that we might save some and share in the blessings of the gospel. To those that grew up in church, but maybe were still religiously lost, we became a traditional service. To those that didn't grow up in church and didn't know what a fetter, an Ebenezer, or a bulwark is, we became more of a modern service. To those that didn't own suits, we became jean wears. To those that were tiny and couldn't stay focused for 45 minutes, we became power kids. To those who were coming out of recovery and walked a unique, tough path, we became recovery in Christ. To those who only come to church once a year on Christmas Eve, we became a service for the community. To those that Jesus doesn't make sense, we at Grace became a church where Jesus would be pursued, that Jesus would be made sense of, that we make sense of Jesus. And to those who try to get in the way of Jesus' vision and his mission, he said, get behind me, Satan. We looked at this last week. That Jesus' words about us confusing traditions with what God has called us to do, who confuse our preferences with God's passion, who confuse the way we do things with God's mission, he has some strong words, which tells me this, that if our human mindset is that the external will ultimately change the internal, that if we just do the right things, it'll change our hearts, that God's mindset is that the internal will ultimately change the external that the internal will change the external. Tim Keller calls this an outside-in cleansing. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 and 15. Again, Jesus called the crowds to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. These Pharisees, and I think we're the same way, the way that we think, the way that we operate is that something outside is going to contaminate me, that something on the outside is going to affect me on a deep, deep level. And though that has some practical sense to it, like we said at the beginning, on a deep level, we think this way. And I think this is what happens many times. Whether it's different types of conservative groups or individuals that we think if we just withdraw from society, if we just kind of get away from the cuss words and MTV of the craziness of the world and we pull off on our own, if we just stay indoors, then somehow we can stay away from all the evil that's out there, right? But I'm never surprised. I'm never surprised when I'm reading the news and there's some pastor or some member of the Duggar family or member of whoever tried to withdraw from society that, that it comes out that they had some sexual allegation or something like that. 
Because the belief is that if we just withdraw from the world, we'll be fine. But what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is saying is it's not out here that defiles us. It's from within us. It's from what comes out of a person that defiles us. He goes on to say this in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's own heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. You guys feeling good with the words of Jesus right now? What Jesus is telling both his Pharisees and his disciples is that we all are in trouble. That in this culture, which is similar to ours, that if we think we can uh, clean and fix up and modify the outside in order for it to change the inside, Jesus shuts that down real quick. He says, it's not from the outside that all these evils come. It's from within us. It's from inside of our hearts. None of us make it out of this list alive, right? None of us make it out of this list because all these things flow from our hearts. If I could just take a side note for a second because I feel like I'm not far removed from like high school age. It was like a decade and so ago. That the, the narrative of our culture, the kind of, the thing that we kind of primarily follow in our culture, if we had the mantra of our world, is follow your heart. As if Disney Channel was our Bible, what it proclaims is follow your heart. Let your heart lead you, let your heart guide you, and everything will be great, Right? What the Bible says, what Jesus is saying here, what even Jeremiah says is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That Jesus doesn't call us to follow our hearts. He doesn't say to the disciples, leave your nets and go and follow your heart. It's not what he says. He says, follow me. It's a very different thing. And I think sometimes where the church gets confused is we think that they're the same thing. And so my heart wants a bunch of money, so Jesus wants me to have a bunch of money. And my heart wants everything to be fine and for there to be no problems at all in my life. And so Jesus must not want to be problems in my life. And then when those things don't end up to be true, we're like, God, what the heck? Because we're following our hearts, we're not following Jesus. It's a very different thing. But this entire conversation that Jesus is having with us, that he's having with his disciples, that he's having with his Pharisees, is a matter of the heart because our heart is desperate to be filled, to be fixed, to be made whole. That's what these, these Pharisees are longing for in their attempts to cleanse themselves. We find our own ways to manage it, but Jesus gives us the news that it's from within that these problems come in the first place. I think that this passage points to it and the gospel declares it and that's that we are in need of a new heart. That in our, in our attempts to follow traditions, cultural practices, social norms, to try and fix our hearts, scripture shows that it's only through Christ that we can find new life and a new heart through him. This is the promise that God gives us. If you read the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus is these people whose hearts are hard. Who, while, while God continues to bless them, continues to show up, continues to lead them, continues to give them second chances and second chances, that their hearts are just hard. Sound like anybody we know? Ourselves. But they continue to turn their backs. They continue to, to worship other idols and not God. And this is, this is a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that is about what God is going to do eventually. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. 
and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. What's so interesting to me and caught me this morning is that these, these Pharisees, in their attempts to clean themselves, in their attempts to change their hearts, they had to wash everything. And what God says in Ezekiel is that I will sprinkle your hearts, that I will cleanse you, that I will give you a new heart. Rabbi Zechariah says that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive, to give us a new heart, to give us new life. This is why when we sing songs, we sing, I ran out of that grave. It's not because we're like singing Halloween songs, but it's because we believe that Jesus has brought life from death. It's why when we put people in this giant tub and baptize them, it's a picture of their old life being laid down and their new life in Christ being raised. That's the story of the gospel. We have new life in Christ because Christ has given us a new heart. He's given us new life. Ephesians 2 says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy may made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that we've been saved. That in all of our attempts to clean up ourselves, God is the one who will come and clean us up. And as I was preparing for this, as I was thinking about this, there's almost this like natural tendency, like I said, for the external to work or the, the external to, to take predominance. And, and what I was thinking about as prepping this, I'm like, okay, so how do we, how do we change our hearts? Like, how do we change my heart? Like, there's, there's, there's spiritual practices. We're going to look at some of these next week that are very, very, very important. But how do we change our hearts? I'm like, do we have to just, like, do these certain things every day? Like, what do we have to do? And I stumbled upon this quote, and I love it. It says this. If the problem lies internally within our hearts, the question is, what can change the heart? Whether you're in a marriage whether your kids have gone wayward, whether it's a relationship that's broken, like how do we change someone's heart? The heart is changed through being loved. It's so simple. I know some of you are like, oh, okay, sure. It's so simple, but think about this. That in our ache, whether it's us as Pharisees, in our ache to be okay, in our ache to be cleansed, in our ache to be able to go to sleep at night and just feel okay with who we are, to feel like we are cleansed, to feel like we're going to be fine before God, fine with ourselves, fine with even the world around us sometimes. In our attempts to that, we try to cleanse ourselves our own way. But the cosmic story of the Bible, it's pretty different than what you see on the news, actually, or even in Christian culture, is that God who created all things, who sustains all things, who is beyond our comprehension, who isn't just a political deity, who isn't just the American God of success, but the actual God who created all things, who, as we can just mine the depths of wisdom and knowledge to understand the scriptures and understand God, we aren't even going to scratch the surface. That God who is beyond our understanding, if you don't really quite entirely get God is probably probably in a good place because he's beyond our understanding. That that God who can't comprehend, he made himself known in the form of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago. Not in the form of a giant emperor, not in the form of a movie star, not in the, the form of a magician, but in the form of a Jewish carpenter, a working class rabbi who showed up and walked and met people where they were at. God himself dwelt with humanity, clothed in humanity, walked with us, met us where we were at, met a woman by the well, met a religious guy in the middle of the night who had questions, ticked people off, 
drew people to tears by his interactions with them. That God is the one who steps into our lives and says that I've loved you. You can lay aside all these attempts to cleanse yourself. I love you. How is the heart changed when it's loved? Think about your own life. Whether it was sin, whether it was a failure, whether it was just the wrong decision, whatever it was, and you're running from somebody, running from a situation, think about those times that person finally grabbed you and was like, hey, I know you messed up, but I love you. Tell me that isn't the thing that changes our hearts. Tell me that's not the thing that changes our hearts. Whether you, whether you grew up in church or not, whether you have a church background and you can kind of identify with these Pharisees or whether you're just trying to find whatever it is in life that's going to make you okay, that's going to make you clean, that's going to make you not defiled, what are you hoping is going to cleanse you? What are you hoping is going to make you okay? Is it that relationship? Is it that job? Is it this, this physical thing? Is it just your withdrawal from all these problems anyways? And so is it just sitting in Netflix or sitting in this video game or sitting on social media? What is it that you're hoping is going to cleanse you? And I know that sounds cliche, but I think it's true for all of us that we all have these things that we hope are going to make us okay. A guy named David Zoll says, the promise of salvation has fastened onto everyday pursuits like work, exercise, romance. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, that we could be enough. Man, I think, I think that's true for all of us. And you may be like, not true for me. I, I think it's true for all of us. That's just what I think. And for, for those of us that are in the church, I go back to the conversation we had earlier, like our, our, our preferences, our, our methods, are the way in which we do things, are those more important than what God has actually called us to? Like, is the form more important than the function? A couple weeks ago, it's humbling. Dan uh, talked about the passage with, when Jesus calls the children to himself. And he said, what got in the way was the disciples. Jesus' followers, his friends were the one, ones who got in the way of children coming to him. Are we getting in the way? Like, are our preferences, are the way that we think everything should be, is that getting in the way of people coming to know Christ, people coming to interact with that God who made his way to us? I think about sometimes, like, what are the things that really get us angry, that really get us worked up, that really get us passionate? Ah, is it when my life doesn't go smooth? Is it when the right or the left take over? Like, what are the things that really get us upset, that really get us frustrated, that really get us ticked off? Because they might be human traditions, human preferences. They may not be the same things that God is passionate about. I think for us as a church, Jesus is kind of rebuking us here. He's kind of calling us here saying, hey, guys, you might be getting in the way. And what's hard sometimes, and this is hard for me because I'm a pretty easygoing person. I don't like to be rebuked. Just please leave me alone. I'm just nice, please. But the thing about Jesus is that the most loving thing he does for his church, the most loving thing he does for us sometimes is like, hey, stop it. Stop what you're doing. Stop it. I have a six-month-old. He like wants to put everything in his mouth. I'm like, stop it. Don't put that tack in your mouth. He's like, what the heck, Dad? I'm like, you're going to choke on a tack. Stop it. Like, it sounds, it sounds cheesy, but I think sometimes the most loving thing that God does for his church is calls us, hey, hey, put your traditions aside. 
Put your preferences aside. Put your, your social traditions that are so important, your political traditions that are paramount, your church traditions that are kind of weird, put those aside. Those are capturing your heart. Those are becoming idols. And you're forgetting about what I've called you to. You're forgetting that I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new life. And I don't want you to stay where you are. I've called you into something deeper. I've called you into the work that I'm doing. Now, there is totally a practical aspect to all this. We're going to look at this next week. But man, what are the rhythms of Jesus? What is the life that Jesus calls us into? What does it look like? Because it probably looks different than our modern society on how the rhythms of our life are. So come back next. We're going to continue this conversation. Look at what is the story that Jesus is telling us? What is the story that Jesus is calling us into? Can we pray together? God, we're just thankful that you meet us where we're at. We're just thankful that you, that when we are in need of grace and when we're broken, that you meet us with grace. You meet us in our brokenness. And when, when we are maybe sometimes prideful, when we are sometimes full of our own preferences and our own wants, that Jesus, sometimes you kind of, you kind of smack us and you remind us of who we are. You remind us of what we need. And Jesus, may, may we just be able to, through the power of your spirit and just the tenderness of your spirit, be able to look internally over the course of this week that we might see what are the, what are the traditions, what are the, the standards, what are we doing to cleanse ourselves that we are holding so tightly to? That Jesus, we may work out our salvation, that we may work what you have made to be true inside of us, that they, that may work out into our lives, that you may continually call us deeper, call us to trust and follow you in a deeper way, Jesus, because we believe that life and grace and peace is found in you, Jesus. You have given us a new heart. You have given us new life. Jesus, we pray that we continue to operate to let that play itself out in our lives. And we're thankful that you don't leave us to do that, Jesus, but you give us one another, that you give us your spirit to continue to draw us into your faithfulness and into your goodness and into the work that you'd have for us. It's because of the goodness of Jesus that we pray. Amen.